Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open them to the fifth chapter of the Old Testament book of Joshua. And this morning we're in chapter five. Uh, The truth is I had intended to um, write and preach about six or seven sermons that I would preach during the summer months and then we'd go back to the Gospel of Luke in August. But uh, the more I study, the more I'm enjoying it. So I think I'm up to about 10 sermons now. So we may not come back to Luke until 2019, we'll see. (laughs) We'll just keep going. Last week we studied in the third chapter where God supernaturally dried up the Jordan River, making it possible for the Israelites to walk into the promised land on dry land. Uh, But the river, of course, was just the first obstacle they faced. Once they were across the river, there was still the matter of seven powerful, wicked tribes that they had to defeat. They're really nations, many of them housed in fortified cities that would be very difficult to take. And before we read our text this morning, I want to remind you why we study the Old Testament. There are really two basic reasons. One is for encouragement. In Romans 5.14, Paul wrote, whatever was written in earlier times, I think that to be the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God wants us to know that uh, He's with us, and that whatever is happening to us, it's not the first time. The Lord is not overwhelmed, and He knows how to handle it. And then secondly, there are passages in the Scripture that serve as warnings to us. Again, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's writing to Jewish Christians and he's saying that uh, our ancestors were brought out of Egyptian bondage across the Red Sea miraculously. The Lord's presence was with with them with his pillar and cloud. And they were baptized into Moses in a cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them was not God well pleased. He laid them low in the wilderness. And that's a warning, isn't it? That of all those perhaps two million people that God brought out of Egyptian bondage, only a few of them were allowed to live long enough to make it to the promised land. Almost all of them, including Moses, died in the wilderness on the way. And a new generation, he rose up. And we're going to talk about that new generation today. So as you read the Old Testament... As you study it, as you listen to sermons, look for those two things, encouragement of what to do and warnings of what not to do. Well, chapter 5, our text today, is an example of the latter. It is an encouragement to do what is right. There are many things that the Bible teaches are always right for a believer to do. And I want to concentrate on just four of those, four things that it's always right for a believer to do. One, it's always right to obey the Lord. We're going to read our scripture a little differently today, just in sections. So we're going to begin in verse 2 of chapter 5. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, now at what time? After they had crossed the the, uh, Jordan River on dry ground, after they had built that 12 stone monument that their children were to remember every time they passed that way of what the Lord did that day. 
After that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. And Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. That is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that He would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom He raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now may the Lord add His blessing the reading and hearing of His Word. Now this seems like a strange command from the Lord. He's just parted the Jordan River, allowing them to walk into dry land. And the city of Jericho was the first obstacle they faced. And that was a, a large city. It had high walls, seemingly impenetrable. You would think, though, that they would strike while the iron was hot, use that enthusiasm, use that adrenaline, as it were, and go and take the city by force. But God had a different plan. He told them, to camp out, and then he told Joshua to circumcise all the men. Now you remember in Genesis chapter 17, God had given their father Abraham a covenant. A covenant is a contract. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to do some things for you. One, he says, I'm going to make your name great. And we know that Abraham is a name that is revered world over in a multitude of places and in several major religions. And then he said, I'm going to multiply your seed so that it's more numerous than the stars in heaven and the sand of the seashore. And then the third promise he made was a land promise. I'm going to give a land to you, remember? This is the promised land that these people had inherited this promise from Father Abraham. But this is what he said to Abraham in Genesis 17, 9. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. This was the external sign that they indeed were God's people that He had said I'm going to protect you and I'm going to make you great. And this is a renewal of that covenant. All of those that had been born in Egyptian bondage had been circumcised. And now those who were born in the wilderness had yet to be circumcised. And so Joshua says it's time now for the renewal of the covenant. And he does so in two ways. First is through circumcision. And second is the commemoration of Passover. Now this seems like poor military strategy. Because after the circumcisions take place, it's going to be a number of days, perhaps weeks, before the men are able to fight again. And so this makes them susceptible to attacks. What if the enemies came out of the walled cities and attacked them as they were in their tents? Have the Lord ever asked you or commanded you to do something that made you scratch your head a little bit? Lord, do you really want me to do this? Well, perhaps that's what the people were thinking. But it is always right and it is always safe to obey the Lord. Remember in chapter 3, 
he told them to consecrate themselves. And we said the word consecrate means to set yourself aside from sin. That is, separate yourself from sin. And there's often a ceremony of cleansing that goes along with that. And I believe this ceremony of circumcision is a visible expression of the separation from sin and the flesh. And it's a reminder that the battle is the Lord's. As they cast that flesh away, it's a reminder that if they seek to take these seven nations in their own flesh, they will surely fail. But if they trust and depend upon the Lord, they cannot fail. And just as circumcision is the sign of the old covenant and the reinstitution of the Passover is a reminder of God's salvation, we have similar reminders in the new covenant, don't we? Every time that uh, we have the ordinance of baptism here. It is a symbol and a sign of the new covenant of forgiveness of sins, of regeneration and renewal. Every time we take of the Lord's Supper here, we remember the high cost of our sin and we remember the great love wherewith He loved us. We remember, in short, the Lord's salvation. And so it is right and appropriate to obey the Lord and to remember His promises. But there's a second thing that it's always right to do, and it's always right to wait on the Lord. Look at verse 8. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The place they crossed the river, they renamed Gilgal, which means to roll. The Lord had taken away, in other words, their shame of being in Egyptian bondage. But it's always right to wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, these men were literally waiting in their tents until they were physically strong enough and able to fight. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible about waiting on the Lord you might have memorized, Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, two things primarily. First of all, it means that we recognize our dependence on God. And then secondly, it means we are willing to submit to His plans, His terms, and His timing. An easy way to remember that is to remember two numbers, the number 300 and the number 285, because those are the numbers of two very famous hymns in your Baptist hymnal. Number 300 is, without him I can do nothing. And number 285 is, wherever he leads I'll go. If you know those two songs, you understand what it means to wait on the Lord. Without him I can do nothing. We recognize our total dependence on him. In our flesh, we will surely fail. But remember Psalm 18:29. With the Lord is with me, I can run upon a troop. I can take on an army by myself. I can leap over a wall. And then... 285 is wherever he leads, I'll go. That means, Lord, I'm at your disposal. I'm giving up on my own plans and strategies. I'm making myself available to what you would want me to do. I can remember when I was 19 years old, was the first time I seriously prayed that prayer and meant it. I was a Christian, but I was always afraid to say, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go, because I was afraid of what his answer would be. I had my own plans. I had my own strategies for life. And when those began to fall apart, the Lord humbled me. And I honestly prayed one night, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want me to do, including being a pastor. And you know, 
what I thought was being called into ministry was the Lord twisting my arm until I cried uncle. Making me do what I didn't want to do. But you know what I found? What the calling of the Lord is God giving you joy in what he's called you to do. And this is a safe prayer to pray. Lord, what do you want me to do? Wherever you lead, I'll go. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. There's a third thing that it's always right to do, and that is depending on the Lord. It's very similar to waiting on the Lord. Verse 10, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year, depending on the Lord. What do we need to depend on the Lord for? Well, first and foremost, for salvation. That's what the Passover reminded them. They were in bondage down in Egypt, helpless and hopeless. And God sent a deliverer and he sent the 10 plagues and the 10th plague was death. And whatever household did not have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost and lintel, death visited that house. That of course is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as John the Baptist says, is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And whoever has his blood applied to your sins is forgiven, and you don't have to fear death. Romans 8 1 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, to depend on the Lord, first and, mo- first and foremost, means you depend on him for your salvation, your eternal destiny. But it also means you depend on him for everyday sustenance. I just came out of a prayer meeting where we prayed for rain. Our land is dry. And, and as sophisticated as we are, we put men on the moon. We have cars that drive themselves, for goodness sake. Not very well, I'm told. <laughs> but we do. But we can't even make it rain. We are dependent upon the Lord for our very sustenance. And so were the Hebrew children. They left Egypt. They were glad to be free from bondage, but uh, a few hours into the 40-year journey, they realized we didn't bring enough food. (laughs) And they began to grumble and complain against Moses. And they said, you've brought us out in the wilderness to starve to death. At least back in Egypt, we had cucumbers and garlic to eat. And they began to complain. What did God do? He said, here's what I'm going to do. Every morning you'll go out and I'm going to send manna from heaven. This little wafer-like thing that must have tasted good because the Lord made it. He he does all things well, including cooking. And so they'd go out and every day they would gather enough to feed their family. And the scripture says that they could only take enough for one day. And if they tried to store it, remember it deteriorated, rotted, spoiled, except for the day before the Sabbath. And they could take enough for two days and it wouldn't spoil and for 40 years, that's all they did. They woke up every morning, they picked the manna, and they ate it. They didn't have to till the ground. They didn't have to milk anything. They just ate the manna that God provided. God not only provides for our salvation, He provides for our physical needs. Scripture says, My God shall supply all your needs according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But don't take from this story of the manna from heaven that this is normative. That is, 
It's not God's plan ordinarily for you to sit around and do nothing and he just feeds you. (laughs) Primarily, God's economic strategy for Christians is this. Are you ready to get a pen? You don't have to buy any more books at the bookstore about God's economic strategy. I'm going to give it to you in just a few sentences. Number one, he gives you the health and the mind to work. Two, he provides a place for you to work, and then he gives you the ability to make enough to take care of your family and just a little bit more to help those who are less fortunate. That's God's economic strategy right there, for people to work hard. There's nothing wrong with hard work. In fact, there's a lot right with it. A lot of people have the notion that work is part of sin's curse. It is not. Adam and Eve were given work to do before sin entered the world. They were to tend God's garden, remember? But he gave them joy in doing it. Now their labor was increased because of sin, entrance into the world. But work in and of itself is not bad. It is good. God gives us stability. So my point, and I'm laboring to make, is this. It's not normative to wake up in the morning, go outside and open your mouth and be fed. It is normative to go out and work so that you may provide for those everyday needs. But God still provides the means for you to do that and therefore he gets the glory. We're still depending on the Lord, aren't we? Just as we're depending on him for rain, we're depending on him to provide us work. We're depending on him to help us meet the needs of our family. Fourthly, and this is really where I want to camp out this morning. It is always right to worship the Lord. So Joshua has been named leader. Moses is dead. This burden of responsibility has fallen on him. And I take it he's gone out by himself. He's contemplating. Perhaps he's even praying to God for wisdom. Verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. I take it he can look and see the walled city, this great obstacle in front of him. That he lifted up his eyes and looked. Perhaps he'd been praying. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Worshiping the Lord is right. Joshua was the commander of the Hebrew armies. But he comes in contact now with the commander in chief. He's out walking one day and he sees across from him what the scripture describes as a man with a sword drawn. It would be the equivalent of the day you're out on your walk down at Bear Creek Park and you walk under the bridge tunnel there, and there's a man with a pistol in his hand. You would have concerns. Joshua had concerns, and he asked the man, are you for us or our enemies? Which side are you fighting for? It's obvious this was a man of war. And the man's answer is confusing to us at first blush. He says, neither. In other words, he's on his own side. He's not for those in Jericho. He's not for, now we know, obviously he has come to lead the armies of the Lord against uh, Jericho to give him the Lord's plan. So why would he say, I'm for neither? 
I think the answer is very obvious, and I was reminded of it last Sunday morning, sitting right there. As we sang together, celebrating 4th of July week, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Do you remember? Choir did such a beautiful job with that. Do you know the story of the Battle Hymn of the Republic? It's been so long ago, I've almost forgotten, but I used to be a history teacher. And I studied particularly the U.S. Civil War. And this song was written in the 1860s, in fact, 1860 exactly, I believe, by uh, a woman named Julia Ward Howe. And as that song was being sung last week, I remembered the story of how the Civil War started. You remember that the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter and uh, war was declared and both sides immediately had this great influx of volunteers. These young recruits really that, that thought this will be a great adventure. We'll go off to war and we'll have stories to tell our, our grandchildren and it won't last long. We'll be back home to, in time to plant the crops. Both sides thought this. Not only did both sides think it would be a short war in which their side would win, both sides thought that God was on their side. They were told that this was a just war and that God surely was on their side. You had commanders and generals in the Confederate Army such as Stonewall Jackson who were devout Christians. And you had some on the the Union side that were devout Christians and both were telling God is on your side. And so they began to train the soldiers and obviously many of the soldiers were stationed around Washington, D.C., which was near the border of Virginia, which is a southern state, to protect the capital. And they would literally have their campfires throughout Washington, D.C. And they were told God was on their side. It was going to be a short war. And, and, and finally it all boiled over. And the first real battle of the Civil War was called the First Battle of Bull Run. And, and as they came out just a few miles from Washington, D.C. They met the Confederates who were already entrenched in the hills there. Many of the wealthy socialites of Washington, D.C. thought it would be a great time to have a picnic. It'd be great entertainment to go out where the soldiers were about to to fight the battle and put down a blanket on the hillside there and watch the battle, which surely would only last a few hours and the war would be over and we'd all be back to normal. And then the cannons started firing and the bullets started firing and people started dying. And these raw recruits turned to their heels and they took off running back to Washington, D.C. And many of them jumped on these wagons and took over. And the women were scared out of their mind and they ran as fast as they could back to Washington, D.C. And everyone knew, both sides included, that this was going to be a long and a bloody war. And they began to question, was God really on their side? And the answer is right here before us in Joshua 5. The Lord's on his own side, isn't he? The question is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on the Lord's side? Peter says this in one of his epistles, that the stone which was rejected, the Lord Jesus, has become the cornerstone. Back in the ancient world, they didn't use a lot of two-by-fours and lumber. They used masonry and stone. And, And they would find a piece of stone that was perfect and unflawed and they began to chisel it until it was perfectly square on all sides. And then they would set that as the cornerstone and then this wall and that wall and up and down and every angle was judged according to the perfect cornerstone. That's what this commander of the Lord is saying to Joshua. You line up your life and you line up the nation of Israel behind me and you'll be safe. And don't say, 
the Lord is for me. Ask yourself, are you for the Lord? And friends, it has not changed today. We love our country, don't we? We do, and we celebrated it this week. But the question we need to ask is not, is the Lord on our side? The question is, are we on the Lord's side? Are we doing His will? Are we directing our lives and our churches in accordance with His perfection? Because He never changes. Here's the thing about asking the Lord to get on our side. We are fickle. We change with the wind, don't we? Our former pastor, Dr. Patterson, was a man of great humor. And he used to say almost daily, I wish the Lord would get on my schedule. And he laughed when he said it because he knew that was not going to happen. That he was not sovereign, but the Lord was. And he needed to line up with the Lord's schedule and not vice versa. But so many of us, we, we make plans and we have dreams. And we say, Lord, put your rubber stamp on that. But you know, even if he did, what would happen in six months is we'd change our dreams and aspirations. And then we'd have to keep coming back. A better solution is to study the Word till you understand what God's will is and then line up behind it. Because His Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Joshua asked this commander of the Lord, are for us our enemies? He says, neither. Now, what does it mean that He is the commander of the Lord's host? It means He's the commander of the Lord's angelic army. Do you know the Lord has an army at His disposal? He does. It is revealed in a number of places in the Scripture. One of my favorites is 2 Kings 6. When we studied the life of Elisha a number of years ago, I preached a sermon from this text. And you know how I love to quote myself. So, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, you remember that um, the Syrians were the enemies of Israel. And the, the Syrian king was trying to take over Israel. And, and every time he would hatch a plan and move his troops, when he got there, the, the Israelites were one step ahead of him. And he's wondering, what's going on here? And so 2 Kings 6 says, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? <laughs> you know what he's saying? He said, there's a mole in the camp. One of you is a spy. Because every time I make a plan, the Israelites meet us there before we get there. And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet of Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in your bedchamber. God was supernaturally revealing to Elisha what the king's plans were. And he said, go and spy where he is, and I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore send horses and chariots and a great host, a great army. And they came by night and encompassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> so Elisha is this prophet and He's living a quiet life down in this little village of Dothan. He has a servant, much as Elisha was Elijah's servant before him. And the servant goes out one morning to fetch some water. And uh, instead of finding the, the quiet village he was used to, he saw an army. Chariots and horses and archers surrounding him with their bows aimed at him. And he quietly closes the door and said, we got a problem. My master, what shall we do? And Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us 
are more than they that be with them. And the servant thought, what are you talking about? There's a whole army out here. And Elisha prayed that the eyes of the servant would be opened. And the Lord did that, didn't he? And he looked out again, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. The Lord has his army. They're invisible to us, but they're there. And the Lord is is in control of them. In fact, I believe that the armies of the Lord of hosts are commanded by none other than Jesus Christ. I know that, believe that, because of Matthew 26, 53. Do you remember? Um, These armed soldiers go out to arrest Jesus. He's up there praying in in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why I think Joshua was praying. Joshua is a, a type of Christ, right? They have the same name, the Lord saves. Jesus is praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and these armed men come out to take Jesus by force. And Peter, bless his heart, takes on the whole army with his pitiful little sword. Do you remember? Pulls out that little Machaira and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus rebuked him, didn't he? He said, put your sword up. And this is what he said, Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, I have at my disposal and under my command the heavenly host. And so the question has often been asked, who is this mysterious commander of the Lord's host? And I believe it is none other than a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago in Bible school, our children learned a word around here called a Christophany. And a Christophany is a, an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say this is the second person of the Trinity, but I think by implication we can conclude that it was. Now there are a number of places in the Old Testament where God appears. The burning bush, he spoke to Moses and take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Jacob wrestled that angel, which perhaps was a pre-incarnate Christ. Before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, these three men, perhaps representing the Trinity, show up and tell Abraham his plans. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're in the fiery furnace? The king looked down and he saw a fourth man walking among them, right? And so here we have another appearance, I believe, of of a pre-incarnate Christ. This is not just an angel, that Joshua is conversing with, he recognized this to be God. How do we know? Because the scripture says, he bowed down, verse 14, and said to him, what is my Lord to say to the servant? He's worshiping here. And if this were an angel only, or it was another man sent from God, they would have rebuked him. Here's how I know. Revelation 22, verse 8. The Apostle John was given the incredible privilege of being ushered into heaven, to the very presence of the Lord, and he saw some wonderful, powerful things, and he was so overwhelmed, Scripture says, and I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship, hear this, I fell down to worship before the feet of an angel, which showed these things to me, then said the angel to me, don't do it. That is, don't worship me, for I am thy fellow servant, and of the brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book. Worship God. 
Remember, Joshua was with Moses when they went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And do you remember what the first two commandments are? Have no other gods before me, and two, don't worship any idols. And Joshua was not about to forget that. And when he bowed down to worship, he knew he was in the presence of God. What about the Apostle Paul? Shipwrecked. The Lord miraculously saved everyone in the boat. They made it to the shore. They were cold and shivering. Paul started a fire to warm everyone up. He reaches over to to put a stick on the fire, and a snake came out and latched onto his arm. A deadly, venomous snake that everyone who lived in that area knew would surely kill him. He shook it off in the fire, and they sat around waiting for him to get sick and die. But he didn't. And so these pagans came to the conclusion, Paul's a god. And so they wanted to bow down and worship him, and this broke Paul's heart. He would not allow them to to worship him. He was mortified by that. And so what I'm saying is this. Not only does Joshua bow down before this man, he's told to take his sandals off because the place he's on, on holy ground. And Joshua knows only the Lord is worthy of worship. What this figure is saying is, follow me. I am the Lord. And now I'm in command of this army. Only the Lord is worthy of worship. Our time is gone, but I want to review to you the four things that we learn from chapter 5 of Joshua that it is always right for God's people to do. One, it's always right and safe to obey the Lord. Even when He asks you to do something that sounds wrong. Even if He asks you to be circumcised as an adult. Even if He asks you to, to, to not rush into something, but to to wait on Him. That's the second thing. It's always right and safe to, to wait on the Lord. Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Don't run ahead of the Lord or, or lag behind. Wait on Him to reveal His will through His Word. But when He does, move out in faith. Be bold and courageous. That's what He said to Joshua, Joshua 1, nine. right? Be strong and courageous. But there are times when it's time to wait until the Lord says move. Thirdly, It's always right and safe to depend upon the Lord. Put no merit, no trust in your flesh. Your flesh will trick you, it will fool you, it will fail you. But if you build your life on the cornerstone of Christ, it will not move. He will not move. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Depend on Him first and foremost for your salvation. If you're here today and you're trusting in anything other than the shed blood of Jesus for your salvation, you're on the wrong path. Jesus says the only path that leads to heaven is entered through a small gate. That is through the person and work of Jesus and is a narrow path. But that path leads to heaven. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then, once you're saved, trust in Him every day for your sustenance. For your food, clothing, and shelter. For your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, and every other type of need. My God shall supply your needs according to His riches through Christ Jesus. And then finally, worship the Lord. It's right. That's what we're going to be doing throughout eternity in heaven, right? So do it. Now, we call this the worship center. Do you know what the true worship center is? Your body. Paul says in, in Romans 12, to submit your body as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise, I call it. Not one of these dead sacrifices of animals in the Old Covenant, but every day when you wake up, before your feet hit the floor, say, Lord, I am yours. 
wherever you lead, I'll go. And then live your life as an act of worship to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for this wonderful story of, I believe, a pre-incarnate Christ coming to Joshua to remind him that the battle is the Lord's. And I thank you that Joshua led these people to obey the Lord when everything about them led them to do the opposite. When, when everything they knew about fighting told them to strike and attack, they were willing to submit themselves to do what they couldn't understand, which is to submit to circumcision and celebrate Passover and wait on the Lord. And Father, I suspect there are many in this room who are in that process right now. They're seeking your will and have been a long time and, and you're calling them to be patient and to wait on you. Father, help us not to run ahead. It's always right and safe to obey and to wait on the Lord. And then, Father, when that will is revealed, I pray you'd give us boldness to step out in faith and to do what you've called us to do, knowing that the battle is not ours, but it is the Lord's. Help us to despair of our own flesh. Help us not to trust it for a second, but to only trust in Jesus for our salvation and our sustenance, that we may worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.